Welcome everybody to the Moose Room. OG3 here with another guest for our May Mental Health Awareness Month series. We are joined today by an amazing colleague of mine, a friend of mine, uh, and a neighbor as well of my family's. Meg Moynihan from the Minnesota Department of Agriculture is here with us today. Hey Meg. Hello. We're so happy you're here. I am very happy to be here, but I have to tell you that I've been listening to this podcast and I feel like a total nerd that I don't know what OG3 is. What is that? <laughs> well, that's the original three hosts. So me, Joe, and Bradley oh, were the okay. OG3. Well, I kind of picked up on that, but yeah. I thought this was like some trendy thing the kids were all saying and I didn't know what in the world it was. Don't worry. I, I had to ask him the same question one day and I'm on the <laughs> podcast. Well, and it's 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 not really trendy because it's definitely a 90s, early 2000s thing. So, yeah. Well, uh, I, I've been in a hole for a while, but I am I am honored to be with the OG3. And we are honored to have you here. So before we dive into to all the good stuff, I'm going to have Joe start with the two super secret questions. The super secret mm. questions that aren't super secret because I think Meg has listened to enough episodes that she knows. And I'm not I'm a fan. Not, I'm not looking forward to asking them because I don't think the answers are going to agree with Bradley and I, but it's okay. We'll go with uh we'll go with the beef side first. Meg, what is your favorite beef breed? I bet you nobody has ever said Jersey, have they? Jersey as a beef breed. No. <laughs> no. It is darn tasty beef. And I know that technically it is not a beef breed, but it is the beef that I eat on my farm. And so I am going to say Jersey. I like it. And it's, it is incredibly yeah. tasty. So yeah, I'm starting to start a new column for me. I got you. I got, the you know, I direct column, market so. some beef and I, I think our customers kind of like it because it's a smaller animal. And so there's not quite as much sticker shock when they buy a quarter or a half, you know, it's a little bit more manageable for them, but I think it's delicious. Okay. So start a new column for Jersey on your little spreadsheet. And what's got the it. next question? Well, the, the next question is your favorite dairy breed. Well, I'm going to give points to Brad's column by saying Montfiliard. Oh, yeah. Oh, I'll take that. Yes. I what did you think I would say, there. Brad? Well, I was thought What'd you'd you say I'd some say? sort of crossbred, but sure. Yeah. We'll, we'll, well, well, that's not a breed, is it? No, not that's really. Not but we'll, breed. We will take it. Yeah, no. Well, that's, uh, no, that's a good answer. We like the Montes. And in fact, we started with the Montes because of the West Central research and outreach centers, organic dairy program and the crossbreeding that you guys have done there. <laughs> and so we decided that we'd give it a whirl. Bradley, how much are you paying that. her? I'm a pro. <laughs> exactly. I'm a pro. <laughs> All right. Let's hit those totals real quick before we move on. On the beef side, Angus at eight, Hereford at six, which is very important. Herefords are not in the lead. Black Baldy at two, <laughs> Belted Galloway at two, Brahmin one, Stabilizer one, Galvey one, Scottish Highlander one, Kianina one, Charlay one, Simmental one, Nalore one, and now Jersey with one vote. Wow. On the dairy side, we've got Holsteins holding strong at 11, Jersey's at eight, which is the correct answer, Brown Swiss at four, Montpellier at three, Dutch Belted at two, Normandy at one. I was surprised to find out that Emily was a Dutch Belted girl. <laughs> I am. I am. That's that is the dream. Emily's going to milk 40 head of Dutch belted cows one day. Awesome. I would love to have you in my neighborhood doing that. Yes. Yeah. It would be in your neighborhood. So there you go. 
here's the problem when we have people that we're friends with on the podcast is we just, you know, chit chat the whole time. Uh, but, you know, I want to I want to dive into it. Like I said at the beginning, I am so excited to have Meg on today. Uh, you know, as you know, this is episode two in our series on farm mental health um, in honor of May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. And so we are in this really cool position with this awesome podcast uh, to talk about all sorts of things farming. Yes, normally we talk dairy and beef, but, you know, we need to talk about the farmers as well. And, you know, Meg comes from a really cool perspective, uh, as you've probably picked up on. She has a dairy farm herself. And as I mentioned, she also works for the Minnesota uh, Department of Agriculture. So I actually want to start there, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of start there and then we'll go back. Meg, for the Department of Agriculture, uh, I know that you are kind of a, a, a specialist in, in a specific area. So just briefly, uh, what, what is your main charge for the Department of Ag? My main charge is kind of nebulous. I am what's called a, um, I work on strategy and innovation, which is a, a sort of a diffuse way of saying I work on whatever the emerging issue that needs attention is. Uh, and I try to figure out what we've been doing for too long that we need to stop doing and where are the opportunities that need some care and feeding and attention and, and very importantly partnerships with other organizations around the state. And I would say for the last three years I have been heavily involved in issues around farm and agriculture stress. And that's everything from well, all the stressors that we know, it, you know, everything from financial stresses to weather stresses to family stresses to market stresses to livestock health stresses to uh, family and children, I mean, all of it. And I think we recognize that this is a tremendously challenging profession that we're in. It's a, it's a profession and it's a lifestyle and it's a heritage. I mean, it's many things and we have a lot of expectations for it. And we also think that the rest of the world has a lot of expectations of us. And sometimes they're quite frankly more challenging than others. And so we decided that we needed to, as I said earlier, partner with some other organizations around the state, commodity groups, farm organizations, places like extension, um, veterinary associations, and really come together and say, what is it that we can do collectively to help support farmers and other people in our agricultural communities? And I would say, Meg, you know, many people, myself included, consider you one of kind of the, the pioneers of talking about farm stress, especially in the state of Minnesota. As, as I can recall, your work through the Department of Agriculture was some of the first uh, to really dive into the topic really deeply and really poignantly. And I know it all started with the, uh, the down on the farm program, I believe it was called. I remember I went to it because I was- That was a lucky, that was a lucky strike. Yep. Yeah. And I just remember those were so popular and that was, yeah, just what, three, four years ago. And it's been so uh, interesting to, to see where things started and, and where they've gone as well. Well, you know, I think we look around and we see, and by we, I mean, those of us in agriculture, we see other people that are like us who are, are we think are in trouble and we just don't know what to do about it. And we have, a, we have a great mental health specialist in the state called Ted Matthews, who a lot of your listeners may even know. And he likes to say, you know, when we don't know what to do, we don't do anything. 
And so our goal with that workshop was to really talk about what are some of the sources, what are the manifestations to help people outside agriculture understand what makes farmers and other people in agriculture tick, because it's a very, it's a very unique kind of culture at farming is. And by the same token, to help uh, people who are heavily involved with agriculture learn a little bit more about the interpersonal dynamics. And it was just something we tried, we improved it as we went along, and that really was foundational to doing a lot more uh, and learning about who all the people in Minnesota were who had a dog in this fight and were really interested in being more helpful. I don't want to call it shocking, but something that really surprised me and continues to surprise me is how many people outside of direct agriculture still have some buy into it or still feel the need to support it. I think of how much support we have gotten from our faith-based communities, from local law enforcement organizations. You know, there are a lot of players in this. And like you said, a lot of people kind of have a dog in this fight uh, because it's, it's so uplifting to me to see how these communities really realize how vital these farmers are. And, and when they need help, they, they want to try to provide it. I mean, the amount of communities that just independently did farm stress programming and are still trying to do different things uh, is really astounding to me. Meg, I don't know if you've seen the same thing. I'm guessing you mm -hmm. have. I think of the variety of people at the Down on the Farm workshops and, and the workshops you've had since. I absolutely do. And I'll tell you, I mean, one of the, the, the inspiration for taking that tack came actually from a podcast. Speaking of podcasts, I was milking cows. I was, um, it had a period of time that I was farming here by myself because of some disruptions and some challenges that we're having on the farm. I found myself in a position that I really had to run things here for about six months. And I was kind of at the end of my rope. I was best friends with podcasts because I was alone all the time and they connected me to new ideas and the world and entertainment and things. I wish there had been a moose room back then, but I was listening to a podcast from England called Farming Today. And it's about 12 minutes, it's every day, and they go all around the United Kingdom. And it's really interesting to hear about farming in a different land where they speak English, right? So I could, could listen in. So they go to Wales and Scotland and they were talking to a woman who had lost, she was a, a farmer. Actually, she was more of a farm wife than a farmer. Her husband had been the farmer. She considered herself to be a farm wife and he died by suicide. And she, uh, she was the one who found him. And she went through a tremendous amount of, of grief and anger and confusion and, and the things that happen after we lose somebody we love. And she started thinking back on the note that he had left her, which said, I know how hard you tried to help me and you couldn't, but it's, you might be able to help other people. And she really took that seriously. And so she started reaching out to people who work with farmers to veterinarians, to clergy, to the people at the feed stores, whatever they call the feed stores in, in England, probably feed shops, but all of the people who make up the fabric of the community saying, how do we recognize and respond when we see farmers in trouble? And I thought, well, that's brilliant. I wonder who does that here and how we could do that in Minnesota. And I started looking around and then I started talking to people and we thought, well, there really isn't anything that similar. So why don't we try to build that? And so it was just a shot in the dark. We tried and to, to see what would happen. And, you know, I mentioned veterinarians. I can remember during that, during that time when I was here by myself and, you know, crawling the walls and worried about everything and not sleeping. One of the most helpful people in my life was 
our vet Dan and his red truck and he would pull in to take care of a cow, take care of something, and he'd spend a few minutes afterward just talking to me. And I'd say things like, well, you know, how's everybody else doing? Like, is anybody else on the brink like I am here? And so he'd tell me, he'd never break any confidences, but, you know, he would tell me what people were battling with and, you know, the good things and the bad things. And he was like a little mini counselor. And I thought it's people like that, that farmers already know and trust, you're far more likely to open up to than necessarily having to go out and find a professional. Now, as you've mentioned in a lot of the podcasts that, that I've listened to, Emily, there is a real role for a professional sometimes. But sometimes we need a listening ear, you know, a doorway into that. And maybe it's a pastor and maybe it's a neighbor, the right neighbor. And maybe it's your veterinarian. And I think those people would like to be in a position to help, but they really don't know, like, what is my role? How do I deal with somebody sharing their deep, dark secrets with me? What's my responsibility here? So we wanted to help people be more comfortable with that and have them know you don't have to be a psychiatrist. You just have to be there for each other. That's such a great point, Megan, and tying back to the Farming Today podcast and, and you know, that, that farm wife and her husband, that note is just gut-wrenching. Um, that makes you know. me, it chokes me up every time yeah. I talk about it. And, you know, he was right. He, he told her that and she started doing that. And, you know, I was listening when she talked about it. And so I imported some of that, had tons of help around the state with other people that, you know, nobody's doing this themselves. It's, it's just one of these wonderful things that everybody's pitching in and doing a piece of it. So I hope that it's having an impact. I really do. I for sure, you know, think it is. And, and your work really started my work into this as well. And like you said, Meg, it takes all of us. And there are so many people doing cool things around the state and, and around the country, too. I mean, the other thing that I do want to point out is that I am absolutely not a professional in this. Like, I am not a psychologist. I am not a psychiatrist. I do not have an MD. I don't even have a PhD. I just have been doing a lot of work and interacting with the people who are who are, you know, at both the providers and the users of a lot of these services. And so I sort of feel like, like a facilitator or a hostess and the hostess in some, to some degree. Yeah. Well, and, and Meg, I, I don't think you give yourself enough credit here. You know, one, one thing that you have that a lot of psychologists and therapists don't is lived experience. And, and you've talked about that a little bit and I hope it's okay. Uh, to ask you about it a little bit more, because I know you you spoke at one of my very first um, farm stress programs and and shared your really powerful story of of what you've been through as as a farmer that I think was reaching the end of their rope and and wasn't sure where to turn and and was able to to get the help that you needed. And that experience, and I'll tell you a little bit about it. That experience really is directly what led me to having a conversation with the Department of Agriculture and saying, uh, there's some challenges going on in the landscape that I think we are in a position to do something about and people are, people are hurting and people are in trouble right now. And I have only been a dairy farmer for since about 2012. I married my husband late in life. Neither of us had any kids. Um, he is from the east side of St. Paul, Minnesota. I am from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He bought this farm that we're on in Lisseur County in 1988, and he started milking cows in uh, 1994. And I uh, had a rich, full, professional, devil-may-care, live-in-the-city kind of girl life. And I was working for the Department of Agriculture when we met and had been in agriculture for, I don't know, 20 years at that point. But I had never, you know, I didn't grow up on a farm. 
I am not of the farm. I am not of this place. I have a really different perspective. And that has been, I've got to say, that's been very helpful because sometimes when you're a stranger and you parachute into a new land, you notice things that the inhabitants don't see about themselves, right? So I sometimes I can see some dynamics going on that I might not notice otherwise. We are organic dairy farmers, and we have been shipping to a co-op for a number of years. And in 2016, March 1st of 2016, we got a letter from the co-op saying they were stopping our route. And as organic dairy farmers, there weren't a whole lot of other options available to us at that time. And I was a little bit smug because up until that point, I'd been the organic lady at the Department of Agriculture. And Brad and I go way back on doing, doing projects and programs and efforts and focus groups and so I was a little smug and I thought, well, you know, I'm the organic lady at the Department of Agriculture. I'll make a few calls. Somebody will take our milk. And that was not true. We called and did research and my husband was on the phone and he was thinking about buying a truck and taking our milk somewhere. We were talking to buyers. We were talking to cheesemakers. And the, the clock was ticking and April 1st, we had to start dumping milk. We dumped milk for almost two months. And then NFO got us on a conventional truck. And so at least the milk was leaving the farm, but with an organic system selling conventional milk and particularly at the, the like it was about $13 then, uh, and organic was up close to 40 when, when we lost our spot. It was a huge, huge financial kick in the teeth. And it didn't take my husband long to come home and say, you know what, we can't keep doing this. I need to go out to work. I'm gonna go back to over the road truck driving, which is how he earned the money to buy this farm in the first place. And so he felt like to save the farm and to save his own mental health and sanity, he was gonna to have to go out and do something else. Cause he's, you know, the, the most terrifying words for you to hear from your spouse, and here I'm feeling a little emotional again, are I have failed. Those were the words that I heard from him. And so I knew that he was pretty close to the edge there. And he took this extremely personally because he just built this whole place. You know, we didn't inherit this. You know, every hoe, every broken down manure spreader, every old John Deere tractor we have is something that he acquired. He felt like he had done his best and it wasn't enough. And so he fired up a semi and went back out on the road. And, you know, he said, I you do what you want. He said, you can, if you can milk the cows yourself or hire someone if you can find someone or sell them. He said, I just can't, I just can't do this anymore. And so I really kicked in and started in a short-term need of, we, we need to buy some time here. I mean, we can't make this decision. Maybe it's time for the cows to go, but it's, we can't decide this at the moment of crisis, right? We need a little breathing room. So I took a leave of absence from the Department of Ag, which is super understanding. And so for six, it turned into six or eight months, I came home and ran the farm. And initially I said, I'm a city girl here, but I know how to I know how to move them on pasture. It's summertime, right? So most of the time they're on pasture. You can teach me how to mix feed. I can keep them fed, bred, milked. You know, I know how to call the AI guy. I know how to watch for heats, and I can't do the field operations. So somebody's going to have to help me with that. And by God, I did it. But it was a great personal cost, partly because I was by myself, and partly because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. You know, everything was a challenge to me. So like, if you grew up on a farmer, you've done this all your life and the skid steer won't start, you pretty much know the things it could be, right? And for me, I would have to step back and be like, oh God, I have to go through troubleshooting. You know, it could be A or it could be B or it could be C. You know, is it out of fuel? Is it, a, is it the battery? Is it the starter? 
And there were a few people in the neighborhood that I knew I could call, but I never wanted to call anybody too frequently, right? I didn't want to wear out my welcome. So it's like I'd, I'd cycle, I'd call Dave for some things, and then I'd call Owen, and then I'd call Chuck, and then I'd call Randy. And so, you know, they got me through this. And it's not like they were here every day, like, oh, are you okay? Are you okay? You know, they left me to my own devices. But if I needed help, I knew I could call them. But the hours were long. And I just got more and more frazzled. And I went to a wedding. I had one long weekend off the farm. I went to a wedding of a childhood friend in Nashville, Tennessee, where I'd lived for some time. And a mutual friend of, and I were rooming together. And she talked, it just kind of came out of the blue. She, she said, you know, I just went through this terrible depression. She said, I'd moved back from Japan and then we were gonna move back to Japan. And I went into a tailspin and I could barely get out of bed and I had to go on antidepressants and thank God for them. And I hadn't told her anything about the struggles that I was having and the slamming doors and crying and, you know, not getting any sleep and losing weight and all the stress that I was doing. And I'm like, whoa, she sound, seems really normal, but she took antidepressants. And I think that planted a seed in my head. And so I came back to the farm and during one of the, the pieces, the slamming doors or yelling at the dogs or bursting into tears episodes that I was having just because I was frazzled. I sent a note to my doctor and said, you know, this is, this is what's happening. Do you think I need antidepressants? I can't really afford to come in for an office visit anymore because I'm not making any money and I don't have health insurance anymore because I'm on leave from my job. And so they sent me, a, they, they said, well, we'll send a, a prescription into your pharmacy and it's, um, it's for anxiety and it might be helpful for you. And I was like, oh. And so I, I found time that day to go to the grocery store, which was always a challenge. Like, when am I even going to go and get groceries? I just felt like there was no time. And so I went in and I can remember going to the pharmacy and I walked right over to the water fountain, which we call a bubbler in Milwaukee, where I grew up. I walked right over to the bubbler and I took one pill and I was like, oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> I feel so much better. And, you know, these things take like six or eight weeks to build up in your system to make any difference. But I'm like, oh, God, love the placebo effect. You know, it was just this one thing. And I took those for, I don't know, probably a year until I felt like I didn't need it anymore. And then I stopped and it was fine. And some people, you know, some people need medication. Some people don't. Some people need it for the rest of their lives. For some people, it's incidental. But I had to get over this. Oh, you know, if I have to take a pill, it's a bad thing. And I did. And I was so happy that I had done that. And, and I heard you talking, I think on the episode 14, Emily, talking about medication, and you were afraid that you would not be, you would not be yourself anymore. And I had sort of the same feeling, like, is it going to turn me into a comatose person? And it didn't, it just, it just kind of took the edge off and I didn't worry so much. Yeah. And, and I think that's a great point to make. And I maybe said on that podcast too, where I was, I, I told my doctor, I feel like I was like, I'm afraid of not being myself. She looked at me and she goes, do you feel like yourself right now? Yeah. Like, How's that working out for you? Right? <laughs> yeah, I'm like, all right, touche. Write me the prescription. <laughs> Ultimately, our situation resolved itself and another company decided to take our milk, right? So we were snatched from the jaws of the volcano or the void or the monster or whatever it was. And the Department of Ag was welcomed me back with open arms, which was really lovely. And I said, well, you know, I've been fighting the organic fight here personally for nine months and I don't want to do that anymore in my other job. And they said, fine, we need you to think about new things and what's going on. And I said, well, I'll tell you what's going on is it's really hard out there because when I was, when I was girl farmer here on the farm and I was 
now a peer of all the farmers in my neighborhood. I wasn't just Kevin's wife. I was also farming, right? So we were on it. We had a different peer-to-peer -peer relationship. And I also had a different relationship with other farmers around the state that I knew, that now I was one of them. And I began to see the cracks in everybody's facade. And for some of them, they were financial cracks. And for some of them, they were, I can't get out to plant or to harvest because I can't get off the couch cracks. And for some of them, they were, you know, dad and mom are in different nursing homes and we're not quite sure how we're gonna afford this and we're gonna have to sell some land cracks. And for others, it was, we're going through divorce cracks. Like everybody was having some real hard struggle. And so I went back and I said, you know, it's hard out there. I don't think anybody knows how, how many farmers like are on the edge. And they said, what can we do about that? And then we started trying stuff. So that's the, that's the end of my story. Thank you for letting <laughs> me finish that. Yeah, no, and, and Meg, you know, I just wanna thank you. You have always been really open about sharing your story. And, and I kinda wanna back up a little bit to some of the harder, more gritty stuff in just, um, you know, Kevin, your husband feeling like he had failed and, mm. and, you know, no doubt the, the strain that was on you as individuals, uh, you two as, as a couple, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and everything with your farm and what I, what I <laughs> hate to say it this way, but what I like about that is, you know, it's very human. I, I, I think that we probably have some people listening right now that heard your story and we're nodding along thinking like, yeah, like a lot of this sounds really familiar. And I know for me, that was um, a really, a really startling point um, when I started in this work and I would talk to people or, you know, people would privately send me emails or messages uh, or would write on a program evaluation. Like, I just always felt like I was the only one going through this. Mm -hmm. And I just realized now I'm not. And, mm -hmm. and that isolation, and I mean, we've talked about that in previous episodes, so we don't need to go into that in depth, but that isolation, you know, it, it starts so small and it just grows bigger and bigger and it exacerbates all of these issues. And so I think your ability to, to go, yeah, I've been through this and yeah, I'm going to be totally open and honest about what I've been through with it. I think has really led to a lot of the changes we've seen. I think you and I both know there's more work to be done, uh, mm -hmm. but I also think that progress has been made. We like to say you are not alone. And I think that really has a double meaning. I think number one, it means you are not alone in the fact that other people are going through this too, you just don't know it. But also you are not alone in that you don't have to do this yourself. If you want to, there are people out there that will support you, listen to you, give you advice, drive you somewhere. You know, there are people who will just be there to have your back while you face some of these tough decisions that you are going to have to make because they can't make those decisions for you. But they can help you, help you, you know, stiffen your spine while you have to do that. Yeah, Meg, I'm I'm really interested in, you know, you talk about being going on medication and that kind of taking the edge off. You know, Emily's talked previously about how medication isn't is the fix a lot of the time. And the fix is it's a way to help you get to the practices in your in your daily life or your day-to-day -day life and help you manage the uh, the problem. But what what else did you change that helped you get over the hump besides just taking the medication? Well, the situation changed. Um, and then there, there came a point at which I 
began to kind of identify what were my problems and what weren't my problems. And I came up with this little mantra when something would go wrong, I would look at it and I would, sometimes it would be something that I could do something about. And sometimes I would just say, you know what? That is not my problem to solve. And so occasionally I just had to kind of repeat that because I didn't always believe it. I'm kind of wired to be a worrier and a fixer. And so, so that's just my baseline. And so I really had to consciously repeat that to myself that some things, you know, sometimes you see a train wreck happening and you can and should do something about it. And sometimes it's just not my problem to solve. Now, if it were a real train wreck, of course, I would do everything I could to stop it. But, you know, I think you know what I mean. Like we, we cannot do everything. And so I, um, I just it came to be a little bit more at peace with that. And I, I completely agree that, you know, for some people, medication makes sense and for other people, it doesn't. And, you know, some people need to go to their doctor, doctor, like that's a great first stop is to go to your physician. And in fact, I remember talking about our form to our former commissioner of agriculture, that was Dave Fredrickson, and he, he had been farming in the 80s. At one point, he was out, I don't know, combining or something, and he was just doubled over by pain. And he got himself into a car, drove to the doctor's office. He did not know what was wrong. And they ran some tests and said, you know, it looks like you've got a pretty bad ulcer. And the doctor said, Dave, I've known you for a long time. What's going on? And the commissioner said, I just, I just broke down and I told him everything and all the things I was worried about and everything that was going wrong. And he said, you know what? We can help with those things. And, you know, there are strategies. And so he was really willing. I mean, he's another one who was willing to say, I have, I have walked through hell and back and all of our hells look different. Right. And, and so I, the other thing that the other, and this came after my own personal challenge with this whole farm situation and which, you know, I still love, and I'm still very involved with it, but thank God I don't have to do it by myself anymore. But I was, I was at a meeting with some farm advocates and some mediators, and one of them said something that just has stuck with me, and that is, every person you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. And that has given me such a feeling of humility and compassion, and I realize when I am judgy and I shouldn't be, and I try to be generous and give other people the benefit of the doubt, you know, without getting taken myself, but... But I think that is really true is we just don't know what's going on below the surface with other people and and still waters can run very deep and some operations just look like a beautiful everything is great. And you have no idea how those people are struggling as human beings. And some of them are like ramshackle, you know, shabby little farms like mine where people are happy as clams, but you know it's just we don't know. Oh, absolutely. I, I think we talked about that in the last episode where we talked about we don't, you never know what's going on in that person's life. And, and you need to be conscious of that at all times that uh, there's, there's reasons behind a lot of things that happen on the farm that you know nothing about. Mm -hmm. um, one of my other questions was, you know, you talked about being alone. We talked about how feeling alone is actually a, a risk factor for feeling more depressed or more anxious. Mm -hmm. and absolutely. Yeah. And, and you, you, you mentioned that podcasts helped you figure out and, and helped you have something that helped you not feel so alone. You also mentioned like that just little moments where people were checking in on you and, and letting you know that there's other people that are struggling as well. My, my big thing that we've kind of touted a couple of times now is, is the use of social media and groups to, to help you feel not 
as a loan. And, and social media is kind of my, my focus of this because I, I always go back and forth with social media. I think it's a great tool to help you feel not alone. But I also feel like it, it's, it's a tool that we've kind of become skeptical of and, and rightly so because what you see is a lot of times the highlights of, of what's going on are out there. You don't see some of the bad moments. People don't no, tend to don't. post those. Well, I think that people, typically people use a persona there and it's just not their genuine selves. And I think social media sometimes to learn things like I'm on a, I'm on an organic dairy Facebook group because I learn stuff from people. Um, and, but also there are some cranks and some very unpleasant people. And so I think you really have to take social media with a grain of salt. I think you need to regulate it. I think if it's, if it's too many nasty people, you need to get out. And I'm a big fan of just making some contact with other human beings, even if that's going to the grocery store and walking around. I mean, sometimes that can snap me out of a bad mood that I just change where I am, who I'm seeing, talk to some strangers. Sometimes it's easier to talk to strangers than it is to talk to people, you know. In fact, that's one of the, that's one of the things I say. One of the things we, we have is a 24-hour um, a helpline that people can either call, text, or email. And that's one of the things It's like, well, why would I tell a stranger? Well, sometimes it's easier to talk to a stranger who you'll never meet and never see again than it is to talk to somebody. And, and we all need to sort of figure that out. So there are options out there. But um, I think that that social media is, a, is interesting. And I think, think Emily has a, had a whole lot more experience participating in and even leading social media conversations than I have. So I guess me, I'm more the kind of on the consumer end of social media, you know, that's my perspective, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that, Emily. You know, just the, the contact piece is huge. And I know for me personally, it became, you know, a, a little bit safer outlet. You know, we know both good and bad. People are mm -hmm. usually a little more bold on social media because they're behind a screen. Mm -hmm. Um, but for me, that turned out to be a good thing. It was a little bit easier to just type it out and click post. And, you know, it was in the universe's hands after that. Right. Um, and, and I think that, yeah, that can be useful, useful. And, and some people aren't into that and that's fine. There are other outlets I think that they can use and that they can see. But I also think that I know, like I already talked about Meg, you know, with you sharing your story. And, and I think we all need to share our stories and we all need to share them in different ways because, you know, we all can draw, you know, oh, sounds cheesy, but like we can draw courage from other people's experiences. And I know for me, that was one of the things that really helped. The reason I shared on social media was because I had some other friends from, from other areas of my life didn't even live in Minnesota that that would share about their, you know, struggles with mental health and, and even their diagnosed mental illnesses. And just reading that again, for me, was kind of that, oh, I'm not alone in feeling this way thing. And, and two, I continue to share it because it's like my, my diary that the whole world can read, <laughs> you know, and, and for me, that's okay. And that's not for everybody. And that's also okay. So also making sure you're having those private connections and conversations with people or making sure you are having that conversation with your physician or going to see a counselor or therapist. Um, you know, we all need to approach this in different ways and sometimes in multiple ways. And there's no right or wrong way 
to go about it. We all have different things that work for us. And I think that, yes, social media can be a very powerful tool in helping us in our mental health. It can be a very powerful tool in deteriorating our mental health. Um, and so I also think we need to develop, you know, that sense of awareness of, okay, when is it time to stop? Um, you know, do and- you think there are social media addicts? Oh, yes, yes. absolutely. Oh, yeah. So then yeah. that's a problem. That can be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think Emily describing it as a tool is the right way to describe it though. Cause because with every tool we talked about on this this podcast, you know, there's a correct way that it can be used and it works. And there's an incorrect way to use it, uh, or that that isn't all that helpful. And I think that's the right way to describe social media. But you know, I think I think we're talking here about this loneliness and isolation piece. And I think that really is um I think that really is critical and there are fewer and fewer of us out here. And I think back, I've got this friend, Therese, who lives in Watton County. And she said, you know, when Daniel and I moved to this farm in 1977, I could look out my window and I could see, I don't know what it was, 12, 15 other farms, right? From my kitchen window. And now there are two and all the land is still farmed. You know, there's still crops or wind turbines or something, but the people are gone. And I just think about the fact that there, you know, there's something to be said for people who are in the same boat with you and kind of understand what it is because they're they're not walking in your shoes, but they're walking in a pair very like yours, right? And as things shift and change in the countryside and there's more space between us and there are fewer of those, those connections, like don't you remember the stories of people saying, oh, we used to go visiting. We used to go visiting and we'd all visit and play cards and be on the porch. And I'm like, I don't see that happening anywhere anymore. You know, everybody's working. A lot of farmers are also have jobs off the farm. You know, everybody is just like running in this wheel. And to, to some extent, they're, they're running alone and they're feeling like the, there's somebody breathing down their neck. And maybe it's somebody who's coveting their land or maybe it's their banker or maybe it's their, you know, trying to keep up with the Joneses. And there's this, this sense of competition. And so I think looking for the allies that we can find is really important and taking time for that. I, I love that explanation. I think, you know, those card games are still out there. And I they had several dairies that I knew if I was showing up on Thursday morning, cards were Wednesday night. So you wanted to be real quiet, talk calmly, oh. quietly, so that, you know, the hangover wasn't really disturbed. <laughs> yeah, but, there, there's another problem. <laughs> yeah, but... But the, I think that the, they're out there if you look for them. But I think that circle has changed, you know, whereas the, the the five or six people around that table playing cards could have been all dairy farmers before. Now it could be, you know, three dairy farmers, a beef farmer, a crop farmer. Yeah. Maybe there's someone with sheep and goats thrown in there. You know, I think that that goes back to when we had uh, Natasha Mortensen on talking about how we're all part of agriculture. And we and there's no reason to be feeling like we need to compete between all the different groups because we're all in like like Meg was saying similar shoes. So I, there's there's people just because they don't raise cows doesn't mean they they don't understand some of the situation that you're in. I don't know if it's an analogy or a metaphor. I don't know the difference. But I had a friend say to me once, "Oh, <laughs> so he goes, you know, Emily, like we may not all be in the same boat, but we're all in the same ocean." And that is kind of the mantra I have used for a lot of this farm stress work of, you know, because we all play the comparison game and we may go, well, they're a big farm. They have a lot of money. They're fine. Well, they're this, they're that. They, you know, they're in this enterprise. Crop farmers make all the money, blah, 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 whatever. But 
we're all navigating these rough waters. Yes, our, our boats may look different, they're separate, but there is still kind of that we're all in this together type mentality, I think, that community mentality, which has always been really vital to agriculture um, and, and kind of the rural living idea. You know, I think that's true to a certain extent, but there's also bad behavior out there. And there are also some real jerks and some nasty mean-spiritedness. And I think we just have to choose our friends wisely. You know, the fact that there is there are fewer of us means we have to make more of an effort to connect with each other. And we've talked a lot today about, you know, sort of focusing on ourselves and, and what we need. But a lot of us look out at other people that we care about and we're worried about them and we don't know what to do. Right. And that that whole theme of like, what what is it? And, you know, in Minnesota, it's like, oh, yeah, you can't bother them. Like, oh, you know, that's personal. I can't be talking to them about that. And I say, you know, sharpen your elbows, just pretend you're you're from the East Coast or something, (laughs) because you'll never get in if you don't ask or don't offer. And sometimes, you know, if you you're you're talking to somebody and you're you're pointing out something that's changed or you're saying, you know, I'm just wondering if everything's okay, what's going on? You know, sometimes you can have that conversation and sometimes you just need to spend more time with people. Like I think about when my husband's puttering around with people on tractors in the yard, like a lot of conversations happen when you do something together, especially for guys. And I think it's difficult to sit down and look into each other's eyes and say, oh, Joe, how are you feeling? And Brad says, oh, tell me more, you know, yeah, but tell you know, me your if, feelings. They're, if, they're, right. if they're palpating cows together, they're going to have some kind of natural conversation, right? So sometimes you need to set up a situation in which you're working on something. I mean, hell, make up a problem. I mean, if you're having like, sometimes if my, my husband is low, I'll call one of his friends and be like, can you take him to an auction or can you do something? Because he's, he's been really feeling down and I think things are getting to him and I can't help him, but I bet you could just to get him out of here or make up a problem that he could help you with, right? So sometimes you just need to lure somebody out of their shell to do that. But then the other thing I would say is, if you are going to do that, and if you want to be there for somebody, you need to be vigilant about keeping those confidences. Because the last thing, you know how small, we're far apart, but these are small, small communities. And I know when you live in a city, you can be anonymous. And out here, everybody knows everybody and what's going on. So if somebody confides in you and you're willing to accept that, you have to be the vessel for that. And not tell their spouse because you think it would be helpful to them and not tell their pastor because you think it would be helpful to them because it wouldn't. You know, you're you're there to help guide, help be a sounding board. And if they're willing to talk to somebody else, you can make it easier for them to get there. But keeping those secrets, I think, is really critical. The only caveat I would make to that Mm -hmm. is if they tell you they're going to hurt themselves or somebody agreed, then you have to tell someone agreed. Absolutely. And you have to talk to them about it. You have to talk to them about it. Yeah. And and if you can, you know, have them be involved in that conversation with somebody else. But You know, Meg, I feel like we could talk about this for hours we and could. hours, uh, but we Sadly, are getting we cannot. a little close here. Yes. So I have one more question I want to ask, but Bradley, you've been very, very quiet. So I want to, I want to give you the chance and put you on the spot. It's always tough. This is not my expertise. So it's always tough. You're uh, a human being. To... Get over the expertise. <laughs> <Exactly. You're human. laughs> I think the big thing is, is what are, what are the say three take home important messages for, for people when, when they're experiencing some sort of issue or challenge that they, in, in their lives, what, what should we do? What are the, the top three things that, that Meg would say to do? I would say one of the big things is that you are not alone, peace. 
And if you feel alone, then you need to get not alone. And that's really difficult because we've got all of these, all of these feelings of shame and worry. And the last thing you want to do when you're feeling like a loser is to go out in the world and say, I'm a loser. I'm here in the world. You know, want, you want people not to notice you and that, that just things just get worse. I think that we can be there for each other. I think that's part of this whole uh, issue of community that we've been talking about. You know, and we're, we're out, whatever the, the metaphor is, if we're in the ocean or we're rowing the boat or we're bailing together, whatever it is that, that we are in this together and we'll sink or swim together. So I think that that's, um, that's important to know. And I think the whole piece of understanding that you don't know what's going on with somebody else. And by the same token, they don't have a magical window into you and they can't see when something is wrong necessarily. And so just as every person you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about, you're probably fighting some battles that they don't know anything about. And that's important to keep in mind too. Those are good points. It's always uh, tough to know, especially, you know, and if we don't know what else is happening in other people's life, sometimes it's hard. And, you know, as Minnesotans, you know, that's a, that's yeah. a natural thing for us is to hold that's everything just... inside. And everybody needs something different. And, you know, you try something and if that is not what you needed, then you move on to something else. Like I said, you know, you could start with your doctor. You could start with talking to a pastor. You could start by writing some notes to yourself in a little log. You could start by getting more sleep or less sleep. You know, you can try different things, but everybody needs some, everybody needs some kind of help because we're human beings. I think that that is the spot to end it right there. You know, again, Meg, thank you so much for being on, for contributing to our special edition episodes for May Mental Health Awareness Month. You know, we always appreciate your insight and, and your experience as well. I am mighty flattered that you asked me because, as I said, I am a fan of the Moose Room. I am a, I am a listener, dedicated listener. She's, she's in the Moose crew. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, with that, like I said, I think we're going to wrap there. Uh, you know, again, Meg has done an incredible job of, of really mobilizing uh, not only the Department of Ag, but a lot of agricultural organizations throughout the state. Um, and I do want to say we've mentioned it before, but if you are looking for resources, the team there at the Department of Ag has done a great job compiling everybody's resources onto one amazing website, minnesotafarmstress.com, mnfarmstress.com. You will find a lot of things you need there. I know that we do have listeners from other states. And so if you are looking for resources for yourself, you can certainly look at what we have available. I would also recommend you contact or look into your Department of Agriculture and your local extension office extension, as yeah. well. So the only other plug I'll do on that is extensions, uh, rural stress resources are at z.umn.edu slash rural stress. If you have questions, comments, scathing rebuttals, as always, you can email them to the Room at umn.edu. That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at umn.edu. And with that, that is a wrap. Thank you again, Meg. Thank you. Bye. Bye. I was there when he was just a little candidate, you guys. I was on the selection committee. Yes, uh, you have me to thank for Brad. Well, well, and if you well I don't know about think. <laughs> or but. play. Mm.